came preaching repentance. And only after the people began to repent and repentance claimed throughout the land, then Jesus came on the scene. And we saw there that when he was baptized, that the Holy Spirit came upon him as a dove. And we saw there that the voice of the Father came from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we talked about the five witnesses to the fact of who Jesus Christ is there in the first 11 verses of Mark 1. But the important thing being that repentance prepared the way for the coming of the Lord. And so we declared congregationally as friends that it is our express desire that we would be a people who are quick to repent. Because Peter said to the nation of Israel that times of refreshment come from being in the presence of the Lord. And how does that happen? By repenting and turning from our sins. And so we called upon the people that were here to repent and we did an altar call. And about 60 people came forward and repented before the living God and were born again. Some just recommitted their lives. But we expressed that our prayer throughout the uh, beginning of this work has been that repentance would become a wonderful word to us, that we would long to repent, that we would be quick to repent, that we would be a people who are humble, willing to confess our sins to one another, that we might be prayed for one another, that we might be healed, as the Bible says. So, last week we left on a high note. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. The Father spoke from heaven. But as you know from life, and as you know from Christianity, so many times after a high note, after a mountaintop experience, comes a what? The valley. And so now, Jesus heads down into the valley, so to speak, in verse 12 of Mark 11. And immediately the Spirit impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. As I told you last week, there's always good news and there's bad news, isn't there? Here's the bad news this week. The bad news is what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the enemy, Satan, has come to kill and to steal and to destroy. The bad news is that 1 Peter 5, verse 8 declares that our enemy, our adversary, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The bad news is that all the way at the beginning in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God told Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. Until the rapture of the church, or you die, whichever comes first, we will be struggling in this battle of Satan coming against the people of God. We will be dealing with the temptations that he brings our way. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Can anybody testify to the fact that last week was this wonderful mountaintop experience? We said, hooray, praise the Lord for the new work. And then it felt like this week all the forces of hell came against you. Am I the only one? I am the only one? Oh, okay, good. Praise the Lord. I thought I was the only Christian here. Because that's part of the Christian experience. The moment you become a Christian, Satan becomes your mortal enemy, the enemy who is looking for your death. Jesus said he came to kill, not to play, to steal, not to give, and to destroy, not to build up. That's the bad news. But behold, there's good news. The good news is that Satan is a loser, loser. The Bible declares that he is a defeated foe, 
that he is done with, it is over with. Take a, a little sneak peek, you know, cheat and sometimes read the end of the book, the end of the Bible. And you'll see there that Satan is destroyed. He is thrown into the lake of fire. Lo and behold, Jesus Christ wins in the end. I hope you're not surprised by that fact. Satan is a defeated foe. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, says that on the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan. Do you know what that means, historically speaking, a public spectacle? In the old days, in ancient times, if you were in a battle with another army, and you defeated that army, you would have the wonderful, fun, dubious honor of going to that army, selecting from it its highest ranking living official and throwing him down before his army and yours and standing on the back of his neck and rubbing his mouth into the ground. That was called making a public spectacle of your enemy. The Bible declares it upon the cross having nailed the certificate of debt which was against us to the cross, having paid the price for our sins, that Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 declares that he rendered Satan powerless, having removed the power of death. And 1 John chapter 4 verse 14 says, greater is he who is in you. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who's that? Wait a minute, hold on, listen to me. People have to make the the mistake of thinking that there's some um, cosmic chess game going on between two equal players, Satan and God. That is not the situation. God is always and forever and absolutely in control. And so the next time Satan makes you feel like he's got some control over your life, the next time he reminds you of your awful past, as he often does to me, remind him of his awful future, as the Bible declares, that he's going into the lake of fire, God wins. Now, regarding temptation, I have really good news this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, I'll put it up here for you. There it is. Look at this. No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way out also. You're not reading the same Bible as me, are you? Listen, you should be excited right now. Let me tell you. Let me read it to you again. No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way out also that you might bear up underneath it. Now listen to me. Ooh, technical difficulties. No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man. That means that which I experience daily is the same thing that you experience daily. The stuff that the enemy throws at me is the same stuff he throws at you. Nothing that you're going through is anything that we all have never gone through. Does that make any sense? No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear. God has put parameters on temptation. Saints, you have to know that. You have to understand that, that God in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his grace, in his mercy has put limits on how we can be tempted. It's not just to the wall, whatever, as far as the enemy wants to go. But God says, it'll never be more than you can bear. So here's the problem that creates for the Christian. 
our number one excuse for our sin has just been removed. What's our number one excuse as Christians so often? The devil made me do it. We all say it all the time. Oh, I just couldn't help myself. Man, the devil made me do it. Wait a minute. If you're going to declare that, you've got to take 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 out of your Bible. Because the Bible says that God has put limits upon it. You can no longer say as a Christian, I'm sorry to tell you this, you can no longer say, I absolutely could not help it and the devil made me do it. The word of God is contrary to that. He cannot make you do it. And by the power of the spirit of God who is it within you, there is a way out. Now there's two views that are common about the devil and they're both faulty. One is the person who sees the devil in everything. They're walking along the beach and they stub their toe and, oh, I rebuke you, Satan, I stubbed my toe. That's the enemy right there. No, you probably just stubbed your toe. The other one is the one who, even when the very forces of hell are coming against their life, they say, oh, no, 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 no. The enemy's got nothing to do with this. Listen, I hate to terrify you this morning, but Satan is alive and active in our world, in the body of believers. But God is faithful. We are engaged in a battle because if the enemy can't get to the Father, he'll get to what the Father loves most. Are you hearing me? Do you understand? If Satan can't get to God, he will go after what God loves most. What is that? That's you. That's me. That's us. If he can't get you to hell because you're a Christian, he'll try to make your life hell on earth. We're engaged in a battle, but here's more good news. The battle belongs to the Lord. The Bible declares in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, that God is a warrior. God is a warrior. Any warriors here from Carpi? Any ex-warriors? Any alumni? Where's the warriors? Put your hands up. Let me see the warriors. That's right. Carpinteria warriors. The Bible declares, and the Westmont warriors. Okay, wait a minute. Hold on. Why is Westmont louder than Carpinteria right now? Bum, bum, ba-na-na. Bum, 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 bum. Come on, Carpinteria. Are there any Carpinteria warriors in here? Man. Westmont warriors. All right. Wonderful. Here's good news. God is a warrior. I don't know why how we ever lose a football game. I don't know how we ever lose a basketball game. God is a warrior. The battle belongs to the Lord. The victory is his. He won it upon the cross and you belong to him. So though we are engaged in a battle, the battle belongs to the Lord. He's a warrior. He has already won the victory. So we, his soldiers, fight from a place of victory and you belong to him. And the Bible declares that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And the Bible declares that as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, and they are, I've been there, I've seen them, so the Lord is round about his people. We know these things to be true. We believe them, and yet it seems as though we struggle daily with temptation. It seems as though, at least in my life, sometimes it gets the better of me. I fall over and over into the same thing, but the promise of the word of God is we don't have to. The good news today is that we, ooh, check one, two, that we can walk in victory over sin. Here's the good news. Jesus did not fall to temptation. And we, his followers, need to look at how Jesus 
gain the victory, and follow in his footsteps. So turn now to Luke chapter 4. Luke has more details than Mark does regarding the temptation of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 4. Now, as we talk about dealing with temptation, we'll answer these questions this morning. How did Jesus gain victory over the schemes of the enemy? What does his victory mean theologically? How does Jesus' victory help us practically? What are the age-old tactics of Satan? And how did we... Wait, no, that's supposed to be how do we. How do we win and what happens when we lose? How do we win? And what happens when we lose? Here's something wonderful. Whether we win or lose in the midst of temptation, the enemy is still defeated. Listen to me now. Whether we win or lose in the face of temptation, the enemy is still defeated by the blood of the lamb. We'll talk about that at the end of the lesson. Luke chapter four, more details on the temptation here. Verse one, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. And for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time. And the devil said to Jesus, I will give you all this domain in its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Here is a big point. Jesus Christ did not sin. Though he was tempted every way, says there in verse 13, he never sinned in the midst of it. That's very important theologically. If you lived in Old Testament times, you knew that when you brought a sacrifice to the temple to atone for your sins, that sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be without blemish. It had to be the choicest of the flock. And you would bring that lamb or that goat or that bull and that spotless animal And you, with your sin, would have to lay your hand upon the head of that animal. And in doing so, you were before God transferring the guilt of your sin onto that innocent creature. And then you would reach down and you would slit the throat of that lamb. And that lamb would spill its innocent blood in your place and make a covering for your sin. But he had to be spotless without blemish. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the one that spilt his blood for us. On him were placed all of our sin, all of our iniquity, all of our burdens, all of our shame were placed directly upon him in order to pay for the sins of the entire world. He had to be spotless without sin. The Bible declares that when he was tempted, he did not sin. 
as well as that, it testifies to the fact of his deity because the Bible says that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not a man in existence that has not sinned. So Jesus being without sin could not simply be a man. He was the God-man, God draped in humanity. Turn now to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews being toward the end of your Bible. Hebrews 7. As we see the victory declared of Jesus standing against the temptation and what it means theologically. Hebrews 7.26 For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus, the Bible declares, is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus faced the devil, and he did not sin. Turn now to Hebrews 4. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace in the time of need. Listen to what the Bible declares because Jesus was triumphant over the temptation. He can now sympathize with us as our high priest. He came in the flesh. He experienced all that this world and all that the enemy would bring against him and yet he was victorious and now being our sympathetic high priest, he is able to allow us into his presence in the time of need. We can go to the throne of grace. This is good news for us because if you're anything like me, sometimes it feels like Satan is getting the better of you. If you're anything like me, sometimes it feels like, why am I doing this again? Wretched man that I am, how do I fall into this sin over and over? Over again, the Bible declares, I have a place to go. The Bible declares that in my time of need, I can go directly to Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, says it again. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Today, we hope to expose the enemy, expose the tactics of the enemy. Now, anytime you endeavor to expose the tactics of the enemy, his schemes against us, You can be sure, you can be positive, you can know that he'll come against us all the more. That is why we need to cling to Hebrews because when you walk out these doors and the enemy says to you, oh no, that wasn't real. Oh, little Christian boy, let me show you what the world is like. No, friends. The Bible declares that Jesus is without sin and that he is ready to come to our aid immediately. So, the victory of Jesus, what does it mean for us practically? Turn back to Luke 4 now. Back to Luke 4. We saw there some of the theological implications. Now practically for us, as we face temptation. 
before we take note of the method that Jesus used in dealing with temptation, we have to notice his mindset. The mindset of Jesus Christ was that he was determined not to sin. When the enemy came against him, what did he do? Man, he fought. He engaged in the battle. He didn't lay down and whimper. He didn't start to scream and yell. He didn't say, woe is me, I'm undone, I can't do it. Jesus engaged in the battle. So many times when it comes to temptation, we lose before we even start because we don't cling to and we don't believe the promises of God. We don't understand that Jesus has the victory over sin and death and hell and we are unwilling to engage thinking that we are the defeated foe when really Satan is the defeated foe. So often we lose before we start because we engage in a love affair with sin. Uh Uh-oh, hold on, oh no, what did he say? So often we lose before we start because we engage in a love affair with sin. Do you remember what it said in Genesis chapter four, verse seven? God said to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. This seems a weird concept, but sin loves you. Sin wants to be with you. Sin wants to be intimate with you. Sin wants to be around you all the time. Sin wants to be in your bed when you go to sleep and in your bed when you wake up. He wants to be in your bathroom. He wants to be in your kitchen. He wants to be in your car. He wants to be in your church. He wants to be in your family. He wants to be in your relationships. Sin's desire is for you. Fundamental problem with Christianity today is our desire is often for sin. And so we lose the battle of temptation before it starts because we are engaged in a love affair with sin. It's to say this, we don't hate evil. The Bible declares that the fear of God is to hate evil. Christians in this community, we need to begin to pray that God would bring the fear of him into our midst. The fear of him into this congregation the fear of him into Carpinteria, the fear of him into La Conchita, the fear of him into Summerland, the fear of him into Montecito, the fear of him into Ventura, the fear of him into Santa Barbara, the fear of him into Oxnard, the fear of him into Goleta, the fear of him into Port Wyneme, so on and so forth. We need to begin to pray and declare, God, bring the fear of you into our midst because the fear of God is to hate evil. And until God's people begin to have the same heart toward evil that God's have that God has we are engaged in this sneaky little adulterous love affair with it I would say that Christians in general today lack the fear of God and here's the problem with it sin and satan are destroyers we play games but they're not playing games They're playing for keeps. Friends, please, I exhort you for a moment to think of the children of our community. I exalt you for a moment to think of your kids and mine. I exhort you for a moment to think of the kids of America, of the 26 most prosperous countries in in the world. The U.S. has the highest rate of violence, murder, and suicide among children. Let me say it again. Of the 26 most prosperous nations in the world, the U.S. has the highest rate of murder, violence, and suicide among children. That's to say, of all the kids in all the first world countries in the world, America's kids are worst off. 
America's kids are worse off. Wait a minute. We have all the money. We have all the programs. We have all the stuff. How could that be? I would say it's because there's no fear of God in our country. I would say it is because we, as the older generation, are failing to model victory over sin. Where do our kids look? Think about our kids today. Some of you that are older than me, the kids today on the way to school are encountered with more sexual temptation than you could buy in a weekend in Las Vegas when you were growing up. They see it on the way to school. The things that they see in TV, the things that they get in magazines, the things that they hear from their friends, where do they turn? Where is their model for victory over sin? Yes, they see that the Lord was victorious over sin, but shouldn't the Lord's people also be victorious? Shouldn't the young Christians in our community, shouldn't the kids who are not yet born again be able to look and say, look, these things don't have to rule over me. I don't have to become a slave to these things. The reason that my friends are dying, the reason that there's violence, the reason that there's suicide and murder, I don't have to fall into those things. I can look at an older generation and say, wow, following Jesus Christ really means something. There really is victory over sin, victory over death, victory over hell, but I fear to say that it's not modeled in this country. We are but a small congregation but I would call this congregation to begin to walk in victory over sin, to engage in the battle. Before we look at the method, we need to know Jesus' mindset. He was determined and purposed to win. Our children need to see some victory in Jesus Christ. In Nehemiah chapter four, the walls were getting built there around Jerusalem, Nehemiah employed the Israelites and they were building up the walls and as they were rebuilding the walls of the city, we're told that all the enemies were coming up against them. Sambalot and the other guys were coming and they were mocking the families who were building and they were attacking the families who were building and Nehemiah the leader saw the fear of the people because of the enemies and Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 4.14, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight Fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, fight for your houses. And so I say to us, this congregation, this community, we've got to fight for our brothers, for our sons, for our daughters, for our wives, for our houses. No longer can we lay down and just think that secret sin is okay. No longer can we have a secret love affair with the enemy, but we have to call an abomination what God calls an abomination. We have to hate what God hates. We have to cling to righteousness and flee evil. It has to be done in our midst. Repentance is a beautiful word. We need to do it. So how did Jesus gain the victory? First, he fought. Secondly, he used the most powerful weapon available in the world. Jesus Christ was God draped in humanity. He could have done anything that he want. He could have called a whole bunch of angels to come down and just start nailing Satan. He could have done that. He could have said to the wild animals, you come and do something. He could have done anything, but he used the most powerful weapon available to him, the word of God. We often say that, okay, uh, Jesus used the word of God to defeat temptation and defeat the enemy. Yes. But do we understand that he had all the authority in the universe, all the right, 
all the might, and the weapon of choice was the word of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, we are told that we are engaged in a battle against spiritual forces of wickedness. We're told there that we have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, that we can shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, all these things. And yet we are given there in Ephesians chapter 6, but one offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so every time Satan came at Jesus, you know that he answered, it is written. Every temptation, he was able to answer with the word of God. Now look at Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? by keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. There is the key. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. How can a young man or woman keep their way pure by keeping it according to the word of God? Now for you older people, you're not exempt from that. It's instructing the young ones here. It goes the same for you. It's not as though all of a sudden you reach a certain age and you go, well, I don't need the word of God anymore for temptation. I have my maturity. No. How can anybody keep their way pure by keeping it according to the word of God, the sword of the spirit which defeats the enemy? But you've got to learn to wield the sword. You have to become swordsmen and swordwomen. If you're going to be able to wield the sword, to have it ready at any minute, you've got to spend some time practicing, don't you? Because in the heat of the battle, in the moment of emergency, the enemy will come against you and there's no time to say when the temptation comes, oh gee, let me call my pastor and see what the Bible says about that. Or uh, maybe I can go down and grab my concordance out of the library and see what the Bible says about that. We have to hide the word of God in our hearts so that we have a ready defense. How many of you have seen the movie The Princess Bride? Raise your hand. Almost everybody. If you haven't seen that movie, what are you doing? You've got to see The Princess Bride. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. How many of you remember Inigo Montoya? My name is Inigo Montoya. How's it going? You're very good. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. There it is. When Inigo was a little boy, his father was killed, and from that day forward, he did nothing but study the sword. He did nothing but study sword play, and he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that when he encountered the enemy who was coming to destroy him, that he would be ready and he would defeat the enemy because he knew how to handle his sword. Christians, we must be able to handle the sword. We must know the word of God. It must be hidden in our hearts. We have to become Inigo Montoya's. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You've killed my father, prepare to die. But it took a lifetime of study for him to have that confidence. I am told that fighter pilots who are in the military, before they ever get in a plane, they study and they reenact and they act out emergency procedures until it becomes to them second nature. Because when they're in a dogfight, and the enemy has them on a run, and the enemy has fired some shots into their plane, there's no time at that moment to look at the emergency manual. Is there? 
Oh, golly gee, I'm shot. Oh, you, you got that manual, co-pilot? Where is that manual? I don't know, dude. It's tucked behind your chair. Oh, can you get it out? Let's see what happens when we're on fire. There's no time for that. You've got to be ready in the same way, friends. Before the emergency come, before the battle come, we must be ready with the word of God. What are you going to do when your friends come and say, hey, man, let's go out drinking tonight. If you know the word of God, you know Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but rather be ye filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Sorry, man, can't do it. Inigo Montoya. What do you do when some bad crowd says, hey, man, come hang out with us? I don't know, man, I'm not supposed to hang out with you. And Satan goes, no, man, those are the cool people. Go hang out with them. If you know the word of God, you know 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, it says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Sorry, man, can't go with you, you bad company. Inigo Montoya. What do you do when you're running your business and the enemy comes along and begins to tempt you and says, hey, just lie about this situation. No big deal. Just cover that up. Don't report that. Ah, do that under the table. No big deal. If you don't know the word of God, then you go along with the temptation of Satan. If you know the word of God, you know Proverbs 12, 12. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Inigo Montoya. What do you do when someone lashes out at you verbally and Satan comes and tempts you and says, you let him have it. You know they deserve it. Let them have it right now. You know exactly what to say. If you know Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up strife. And now you've defeated the temptation of the enemy. What do you do when your heart is filled with lust and the enemy comes to you and says, oh, it's okay. Nobody knows what you're doing in your mind and in your heart. You're only looking. You would never touch. If you know the book of Job, you know that Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How can I look upon a virgin in lust? If you know the Bible, you know Matthew 5, where Jesus said, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. If you know the Bible, you know 2 Timothy 2.22 that says, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. And Nigo Montoya, you knew the word of God. You had your sword ready. You overcame the enemy. What do you do when the enemy comes to you and says, you can't win, you can't stand up against this. I've got you right where I want you. If you know 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, Satan. (laughs) If you know 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no, no temptation is overcoming except for that which is common to man, but God is faithful who will not let me be tempted beyond that which I am able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way out also, Satan. (laughs) But if you don't know the word of God, what do you do? Where do you go? Oh, I don't know. Should I go with them? Should I do that? Should I do this? Be prepared with the word of God. God says in there, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he will provide the way of escape. I am yet to see it be a magic hole in the ground. I am yet to see when temptation comes, any Christian fall into the ground, be swallowed up and spit out somewhere safe. The way of escape is the spirit of God in you working through the word of God, which is hidden in your heart. Determine the way out before the battle. Here's what you must do. You must begin to identify your weak areas. You must begin to identify and recognize where Satan tempts you and then search the scriptures for the promises of God that deal with that. Don't you know that there's power in the word of God? 
Don't you know when you pull out the word of God that truth defeats the lie, that truth defeats the error, don't you know that the enemy is on the run when you begin to, listen now, listen, listen, hold on, when you begin to pray the word of God. Doesn't the Bible say that if we ask anything according to God's will, we have it? I believe it says that. How do we know if we're praying in God's will? Begin to pray scripture. Anytime you're tempted, you pull out that scripture that you have prepared, you pray it, and there is the power of God for victory. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So practical help from the way that Jesus won the battle. But now, let's rip the mask off of Satan. Let's pull open the curtain, so to speak. Let's expose some of his tactics. What are the age-old tactics of Satan? First, he's subtle. Don't you know? Satan is subtle. He doesn't walk up to you and say, um, hello, Brett, my name is Satan. And today I've come to kill you, to steal from you, and to destroy you. Are you game? Sound good? When was the last time the enemy said that to you? But when was the last time his attack in your life was subtle? Sneaky, sneaky. Do you see what he did to Jesus in chapter, th- in chapter four, verse three of Luke? And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, then just tell this stone to become bread. Hey, wait a minute. What's wrong with that? There's no big deal. I mean, that's actually kind of cool. If you're God and everything, why not turn a stone into bread? That's kind of fun. That's a cool thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But wait a minute. It's a subtle temptation of the enemy. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself other than it was not the will of God for Jesus at that moment. Do you have a purpose in your life? Do you know what God's will is for your life? Do you know his plan? If you're not tracking with the Holy Spirit in your life, if you don't have a clear sense of the direction in which he has taken you, then you leave open the door for a subtle attack, a move of the enemy that looks like, well, there's nothing wrong with that. And in and of itself, there's not, except for it's not the will of God for your life. Secondly, the attacks of the enemy, his tactics are that they are sometimes true. The enemy said in verse 6, The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain in its glory for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Now that was a true statement that Satan made. He is the father of all lies, but he sometimes tells the truth in trying to tempt us. All the kingdoms of the world have been handed over to him, forfeited by man, and he could give it to whomever he wished. Everything that he said to Jesus in that temptation was true except for the fact that the word of God says you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What do you do when someone comes to you with truth? In and of itself, it's truth. But in that circumstance, it's against the word of God. Do you even know? Are you able to spot the counterfeit? You've heard that the CIA, when they study counterfeit $100 bills, they never actually see one. They study the real dollar bill day in and day out, the real $100 note, and they would finally ask, wait a minute, when do we get to see the counterfeit? We want to know how to spot the counterfeit. And they say, you never get to see the counterfeit. You will become so familiar with the real that when you see the fake, you'll know it in an instant. Are you so familiar with the word of God that when the enemy comes along with his sneaky tactics, you know it in an instant? So the enemy is subtle. He sometimes tells the truth but it is always twisted. He quoted the word of God when he told Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple and he said in verse 10 that it's written also in the Bible, Jesus, he will give angels charge concerning you to guard you. 
and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's scary. There's Satan using scripture in temptation. But he left out a little phrase which he didn't say at the end of verse 10. He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. The rest of that verse says in all your ways. It's a quote of Psalm 91.11. In all your ways. It doesn't say he will give his angels charge concerning you when you jump off a cliff, dummy. It doesn't say that. It's talking about in all your ways as you follow God. So again, we see that Satan is the deceiver, that he's sneaky, and his angle of attack is subtle, sometimes true, but always twisted. Now look at the nature of Satan's attack. It never changes. I'm going to give you three words here. They all start with P. I hope that you'll write these down. They are the nature of Satan's attack and they never change. Let me tell you why they are the key to victory over temptation. Those of you that play Warriors football or Warriors basketball, or I wish they had Warriors boxing, that would be really fun. Let's do boxing. If you are gonna box someone, don't you study your opponent? Don't you watch all the films? You see the way that he fights. You see the angles in which he comes in. You see the punches that he throws. And so therefore, you have a ready defense. You know how to deal with his attacks. Pastor Gerald, who's back there, my big, bald, beautiful Mexican brother, Pastor G. We play racquetball once in a while. Now, Pastor G is a much better racquetball player than I am. But once in a while, I've got a few good shots in my arsenal. So here's what he does. He lets me win the first couple of games. All the while, Pastor G is studying my methodology. He sees the angles that I'm throwing, where I'm coming from, where I always hit. And once he has studied out my little routine, my little game, he absolutely crushes me and destroys me in straight sets. Happens all the time. He is a much better player than me. Listen now. He is a much better player than me I am powerless against him, but until he discovers my method and my game, I am somewhat effective against him. God is a much better player, so to speak, than Satan. Satan is powerless against God, and he's powerless against you unless you don't know his game and his tactics. Then he becomes somewhat effective. We must know what I call the three Ps. Oh, there they are. The three Ps. Satan will always tempt us in one of these three areas. All other temptations, I think, fall underneath these in one way or another. Passion, possession, and position. Passion, speaking of being tempted in physical desires. Possession, wants, and greed. And position, having to do with our reputation, status, and ego. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, who did Satan tempt? It's not a trick question. I'm just trying to get you to be with me now. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempted? Oh, bless the Lord. Satan tempted Eve. And Satan came and said, Eve, did God really say that when you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. And then he began to say, that's not true, Eve. Here's what's really true. When you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll become wise and you'll become like a God. And then we're told in Genesis chapter three that when she saw that it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and was good for making 
one wise, she fell to the temptation. She was tempted in the area of passion, the area of possession, and the area of position. Just as the three temptations that Satan brought against Jesus Christ were in the area of physical desires. Just make a little bread here. In the area of possession, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. In the area of possession, if you're really the son of God, prove it. Throw yourself down off the temple. Eve was tempted that way. Jesus was tempted that way. You and I will experience the same tactics of the enemy. In 1 John chapter 2, we are warned against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It's the same thing. Passion, possessions, and position. So you need to begin to recognize how Satan comes against you. In those three areas, what are the physical desires that he appeals to in you? What are the wants and the greediness? How does he get you in that area? What about position? How does he appeal to your ego? How does he try to develop in you a selfish spirit as opposed to a servant spirit? And when you begin to identify those, when the enemy comes, you can say, oh, enemy, I see your pee, man. That's passion. And I've got my sword ready. I've got the word of God ready. And if you know what the enemy is going to do, the victory is yours. I can never beat Gerald because he knows all of my shots. It is done with. I will lose. It is only a matter of time. We are ripping and exposing the face of the enemy. You know his shots. It is done with. It is only a matter of time as you hide the word of God in your heart until the victory is yours. So dealing with temptation, again, a little chart. Know the enemy's game. Have the sword ready. And importantly, being full of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted, he was full of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the power of God to live according to the word of God. Friends, daily, I wake up and before my feet hit the ground, I say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I'm a weak man. I'm a sinful man. I'm a proud and arrogant man. I'm a perverse man. God, I am a sinner. I don't want to sin today in that way again. I don't want to hinder your work. I don't want to destroy what you want to do in our community. I don't want to destroy my family with my sin. God, I want to be maximally used by you. I want to glorify you to the utmost. God, fill me now with your spirit. And that's the power of God to walk in obedience. But what happens when we lose, so to speak? What happens when we do sin? I told you earlier that whether you win the victory over temptation or not, the victory is still the Lord's. The enemy is still the loser. Even if you give in and you fail, and you will. First John declares, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, and that is Christ Jesus. Listen to me. Satan is overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has destroyed his schemes and the hold that he has over us. I understand, and I know this morning as we talk about temptation, many of you are saying, I have tried, Brett, all that you're talking about. 
I have read my Bible, I have memorized it, I have prayed, I have confessed, I have repented, and I keep falling back into that same old sin. And here's what the enemy does. The enemy comes in and brings shame. How does he bring shame? He is the accuser of the brethren. He comes once again with the same accusation. You call yourself a Christian. I can't believe you even have the nerve to sit in church. I can't believe that you're going to that Bible study tonight. They know what you did. You know what you did. I know what you did. You're dirty, you're rotten, you're filthy. And at that moment, you say, yes, Satan, and you're absolutely right, but I am covered by the blood of the Lamb. Only the power of the cross, only the blood of the Lamb can overcome the shame that Satan wants us bound up in. And the way that he begins to increase the shame in our lives is by trying to interpret our circumstances or our situations. He wants to be the one that comes in and interprets for you your failures. You can only interpret your failures, Christian, in light of the word of God, that you are forgiven, that Jesus spilt his blood and that expresses forever your value to him, that you, friends, are accepted to God. You are accepted in Christ. You are his child. You need to begin to move away from your position in Christ being performance-based and let it be positionally based. That is because of the blood of the lamb, every sin you ever committed is washed white as snow, removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea. Jesus shed his blood, not only on the cross, but he also shed his blood in Gethsemane. And there was the battle of the will. And sometimes we're engaged in the battle of the will and our will wins out over God as we fall to the temptation of the enemy. And once again, he floods our lives with the shame, but we can say, wait a minute, blood was spilt during that battle. Jesus already spilt the blood to cover the shame of the battle of the wills. What about when Jesus was mocked and ridiculed and reviled and the soldiers played games with him? Jesus spilt his blood when they pressed the crown of thorns upon his head. And so the next time the enemy mocks you and plays games with you and the world reviles you and you begin to feel that shame and condemnation of the enemy, all you need to say is, wait a minute, Jesus already spilt his blood in the midst of the mockery. It is covered for me. Jesus spilt his blood at the whipping post. There he was stripped naked and his back was ripped open from the back of his neck to the back of his knees. And Isaiah chapter 53 verse five declares that by his stripes we are healed. And so when Satan has got you thinking that emotionally you'll never be right, you can declare to him, wait a minute, Jesus spilt blood at the scourging. By his scourging, I am healed. And on the cross, he took upon himself all of our sin, all of our shame. Friends, we are accepted in Jesus Christ. We must move away from performance-based Christianity and into the acceptance that is given to us through the blood of the Lamb. And when we realize that we are now accepted and loved, regardless of our performance, we desire now to walk in holiness because it's no longer religion, it's no longer bondage, it's no longer a yoke, but now it is responding in heartfelt gratitude and love to the goodness of Jesus Christ. And that is the way that God designed it to be. He never said, clean up your life and then I'll forgive you. 
He said, come to me all jacked up, all dirty, just a mess, and I will wash you white as snow. I will make you my child, and nothing will ever change that for all of eternity. And out of gratitude comes an obedient heart. We've got to remind ourselves that we're engaged in a war. And it's getting hotter than ever. More engaging than ever. The enemy is on the prowl more than ever. Indeed, we are living in the last days. We must remember that Jesus will never, ever leave us or forsake us. We must remember that the battle is already won. We must know that we fight from a place of victory and not a place of failure. The victory belongs to the Lord and we need no longer wallow in shame and we need no longer fall into that sin because sin and death has had its sting removed by the cross. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for what you accomplished with your son upon the cross. Thank you that you have made a public spectacle. The enemy destroyed him. He is a defeated foe and you have showed us how to walk in victory over his schemes in this life. I pray that now as we worship you, God, that you will flood each one here with your grace and your mercy. Every Christian who has just fallen into being entangled in that sin that so easily gets us I pray now that you would break that bondage, Lord. That you would baptize each one afresh with your Holy Spirit. That you would come in power and you would come in might upon us. That you would remind us once again as Christians of our position in you. That you would speak to us of our eternal sonship before you that you would minister to us your Father's heart and the forgiveness and the grace therein, that you would equip us with your word that we might defeat the lies of the enemy. Oh, Lord, won't you raise up a congregation here who fears you? Won't you raise up a congregation here who models for our kids in this community victory over sin by the blood of the Lamb? Won't you set your people free from condemnation and guilt? Won't you break that cycle this morning by your blood and your power? Lord, we don't want to walk out of here the same. We don't want to just do church. We don't want to just hear a sermon and sing a couple songs and go on with our lives. Jesus Christ, please save us from church. We want to be real, spirit-filled Christians who live victorious lives because of your power, your grace, and your mercy. And when we fail, we want to model your forgiveness and your grace. Teach us to fear you, God. Teach us to fear you. Give us a willingness in our hearts to be broken by you. I know there's so much pride in here, including my own. So much reputation, so much concern for who we are, so many desire, comfort. Lord, won't you make us willing to be uncomfortable for your kingdom? living on the edge for you, not satisfied with churchianity, but desiring real Jesus Christianity, shunning religion and clinging to the relationship that you offer. Won't you raise up 
for your glory and for your honor and for your praise and for your power, of people who are zealous for your name, of people who are zealous to serve you, of people that uphold your righteousness in this land. God, won't you do it? Won't you use us? Lord, we know that you're pouring out your spirit. We know that you're moving powerfully in these last days. Here we are. Use us. If you're gonna use somebody, why not us? We're just as foolish as anyone else, God. We're as big of sinners as anybody else. Here we are. Thank you for your cleansing and your forgiveness and the victory over that rotten enemy. Yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory and the honor and the praise forever and ever. In Jesus' name.